You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Adam Conrad, who is running Phoenix and Elixir in production to power a Slack bot service that helps you learn more about your teammates. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Sure. So as you know, my name is Adam. Uh, I am a director of engineering at a company called Indigo, which is not the project I'm talking about here today. Uh, this is actually a side project of mine. Um, so what we do is we're a Slack bot that helps you get to know your teammates. Um, the reason why I chose Elixir was because it runs on Beam. So it has very good support for concurrency. And I knew that working in a real-time chat service, that that would be a good complement to what we were trying to achieve. Plus, I really love Elixir and Phoenix, so I wanted a chance to build out a project using that stack. Um, so we built it out about a year and a half ago. It's live on the Slack marketplace, so you can download it and use it in your Slack workspaces. Um, and I just really had a lot of fun building it. I really loved the language. It got me a chance to learn quite a bit about some uh, interesting parts of the language, and uh, that's what I'm supporting today. So um, really excited to talk more about it, about Elixir, Phoenix, uh, the whole stack. Awesome. So you mentioned we. Uh, is this something that you're developing with somebody else, or is it on your own? So I'm the sole developer, but I'm working with a friend of mine who is helping me sort of promote and do the sales and marketing behind it. Ah, so this is like a legit side project, not just like scratching your own itch, like you want to go all out with this one? Yep, absolutely. I mean, we do charge for it. So the way that the pricing works is we do a Q&A style. So every other day, so Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the bot will ask you a question. It will then surface that answer to an answers channel. So you can learn more about your teammates through a shared answers channel. And then we basically ask the first 20 questions are free. And then if you want the whole list of questions, we have over 200 questions available. So you could ask for multiple years questions to your teammates. Uh, we just charge $1 a month per user. Super simple pricing, super cheap. The idea really is just to help sort of create more engagement across your teams. Um, so yeah, we have a, we have a paid service where we're doing this on the side just for fun. And you know, it's, it's like coffee money. Like it's, it's fun to do. And we just want to build a really awesome product for, for the Slack workspace. Yeah, that seems pretty cool. I did take a look at your site before this call and I noticed some of the questions were like, you know, if you were on a car ride, like what type of music would you be listening to? And uh, it made me think like, I would be afraid to almost mention some of the music I listen to because it's like questionable band names, maybe. Like, I feel like I would get fired if I said some of them. <laughs> Did you find that in practice where people kind of just like lie to make it work safe, sort of? That's a really good question. So meta, uh, I, you know, I haven't had anybody yet say that they wouldn't give their full answer. It's a, it's a, it's kind of an interesting balance. Like, I would say one part of us is saying... Like we want you to be able to feel free, comfortable expressing yourself, however you feel comfortable doing that. So in some cases, people feel like they give the safe for work answer versus just the full answer. Um, in other cases, uh, it's more like, the, you know, if, if, there's, if there's anything they're not comfortable with, they can always skip the question. So any question that people don't want to answer, they can always move on to the next one. Um, so we always give people that option in case they don't necessarily want to. The funny thing is, though, is that at least at the places we've we've targeted, we're mostly targeting smaller startups where there's a bit more laxity in the culture where they really are encouraging people to tr truly be their own personal selves. And we find that people are really uh, comfortable expressing who they are. So, you know, it's, it's a great avenue for people to be able to 
sort of talk about things they wouldn't normally talk about, not because they wouldn't feel comfortable, but because they just never thought to bring these things up with their, with their coworkers, their teammates, you know, whatever space they're working in. Yeah, no, it's a very cool idea. It, w- it would be really nice for me to be able to answer that. And it's like, oh yeah, you know, just listening to a little bit of like infant annihilator or something like that. And then someone actually messaged me and they're like, oh, you listen to them too. And before you know it, you go into like concerts or whatever. That's totally the point. Like we, we want, uh, you know, the, the moment I actually had when we first built this out was we were testing it. We have a sample Slack channel that me and my friend are, are using. And that, that moment it really clicked for us was it posted the answer to the, to the answers channel in our Slack. And I learned something about him that I had no idea. I mean, we've been friends for years and this was one thing I had no idea about him. And my whole thing was an emoji reaction of like, that's awesome. And then that, that built out one of the other features too, which we can listen in for emoji reactions in the Slack workspace. And we can actually uh, count that as a like, you know, so the, 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 you know, if you were, if this were like a message on Twitter, you could like something, any sort of emoji reaction can be considered a like. So we can actually track and see who has the most popular answer for a question or the most, you know, I don't want to say controversial, but the one that got the most reactions. Um, and mm. so we can, we can track all those stats so that people can then see like, Hey, did you know that? Cause one of the key moments is we'd be like, imagine if your CEO answered something really like exciting that you didn't think that, that was possible. Like I heard recently that, um, the Goldman Sachs CEO is like a world famous DJ, but nobody knew it was him because he just does it as a side project. So I just had this thought in my head of like, imagine if you asked that question to Goldman Sachs Slack channel, it was like. Hey, what's your fun side project they are interested in? And the CEO just answered, "Yeah, I DJ on the side. Here's my SoundCloud." <laughs> and like, I would imagine the whole place would just blow up, and it would cause such a stir in like a fun way. So, you know, th- those are the kind of moments we really want to create with this Slack bot. So that's why we're just so excited about it. Yeah, no, it, it's a really cool project. Now, swinging back to the site, though, there is like a, a public website for people to go to, and there's the Slack bot component of it. Are they both written with uh, Phoenix and Elixir? So the Slack bot itself just uses Elixir uh, tasks. So everything's in that sense is built with just straight Elixir files. We do have an equivalent web app, which is written with Phoenix. So it's a combination of both. Okay. So were there some components of Elixir that just made this basically like a, a perfect fit for the technology? Absolutely. The fact that you can spin off tasks extremely easily is is the best part about this, right? So. I really enjoy working with Elixir and Phoenix. And so already I had a bend to want to use that as the framework of choice. But when I think about solving the right problem with the right tool, uh, Beam really made things super helpful. Um, In the world of real-time chat, you want to be able to receive a request and then send back a response extremely quickly. And so to be able to have that real-time component where you send a message to the Slack bot, the Slack bot ingests the kind of message. It sends it over the wire to your server, the server processes that, does some work behind the scenes and then sends a response back to the Slack workspace. That all needs to happen extremely quickly if you want it to feel real time. It's amazing that Elixir allows me to do this where I can see responses in the logs in microseconds and not milliseconds. So uh, knowing that the language was built for concurrency right off the bat made it a really smart choice for the Slack bot. So the fact that I can spin up tasks. And the way that a lot of this works is in order to create concurrency, imagine you have 10 different workspaces and they're all interacting with the Slack bot at the same time. So one of the ways that we can achieve concurrency is if we can spin up tasks straight from the Elixir language so that we can say, okay, this person just 
gave a response, sent off this task to help them, you know, increment a value in the database. Oh, well, we need to do 10 of those. All of them just came in all at once. It's going to be a lot easier to do that with tasks than it would be to try to process them in serial. So again, just having that ability to spin up tasks really easily is a, is a great feature of the language that I wouldn't get if I was using Ruby or Python. Like tasks in, in that sense, in concurrency, just do not come out of the box as easily as they do with Elixir. So just having that ability was a really key feature that made working with Elixir super easy and super fast. Right. So when you say tasks, then you're just using the standard library, like literally the task module. You're not using any like a uh, dedicated background worker type of thing like Obin or, or all the other ones that are out there. Yeah, actually, we're using the straight up uh, regular task module from Elixir. Uh, my mantra on all these things is always to use the simplest tool possible and only add on something if you really need it. So in this case, tasks were the perfect tool for us. It did exactly what we needed it to do and nothing else. And you know, if, it, if that doesn't scale later on, I'll totally think about adding on a plugin. But for right now, it's actually a, the perfect use case for us. It's I just create a task. I send it to a function with some arguments that are in an array. And then I just process that like a normal function. So it's super simple, but it does exactly what I need it to do. Right. Now, speaking about scaling, I don't think we talked about yet, like how, like what type of scale is this site running at? Like how many questions do you process per day or hour or something like that? So we work with about 15 different companies right now. And the team size is anywhere from 10 to 150. And then we send out a message every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'm just trying to do the math on this. So that's like in the order of like several thousand, I guess, in a given day. And then the rough number of people that are actually participating is about 10% of any given group. So yeah, we're looking at over the course of a week, several thousand events going on at once which is more than enough scale for Elixir to handle, especially in the real-time world. Um, there's that whole thing where they did that large instance of Amazon Excel with uh, 2 million nodes concurrently for Phoenix. So I knew that if they could handle 2 million, that we could easily handle several thousand in a given week. Yeah, but it almost sounds like, well, I'm not really too sure how this app integrates with Slack, are users opening like a persistent connection to something or is it just basically just more like a webhook style with with the Slack bot? Exactly. It's a webhook. So there is a Slack project called Elixir Slack. It's run by this guy, Blake Williams. It's available on GitHub. And all it does is it takes the web API for Slack and turns it into uh, a bunch of Elixir functions that then make under the hood, make requests to the web API for Slack. So you just have to authenticate with some sort of token mechanism, and then you have access to all these functions natively within Elixir. So I use that to, whether it's to get a list of users or to post a message, I use that API to interact with Slack. But you're right. All it really is is just effectively web workers where I ingest some call from the workspace. I then process it like a normal Elixir function, and then I use some sort of web API outbound to say, post this message back to the Slack workspace. Yeah. Isn't it pretty interesting how Slack bots work? Like I just got my first taste of that a few days ago for some client work where I just had to post the message to a Slack channel and I'm like, okay, well probably going to be some like complex API and all this other stuff. And it was like, they just literally give you a URL and you post to it and you're done. Yeah. That part is easy. The hard part, I actually wrote a blog post on this, which made the Elixir newsletter was how to authenticate behind the scenes to ensure that you are who you say you are. 
so all their documentation is written for the Python audience, which makes sense. I mean, it's a really popular language, but it did not translate exactly the same in Elixir. So uh, trying to redo all of that in Elixir was really, really tough. So I wrote a post on how to verify, you know, request signatures in Elixir using Slack as the, as the example. And I'm telling you, it was way more complicated than I thought it would be. Yeah. So I'm sure the community thanks you for the blog post and I'll make sure to include that one in the show notes. Oh yeah. And fun fact, the way that they do time, like, so for example, like most languages like, um, JavaScript or Python, when they look at Unix timestamps, it's from some time in like 1970, I think. Yeah. Elixir does it based on like the Gregorian calendar. So it's like way, way earlier. So you have to do this weird thing where you have two different specific kind of timestamps and you have to offset them. It's like a way more complicated thing in Elixir because of the way Erlang was set up. So yeah, I would just read the blog post because a lot of the stuff was not intuitive to me, especially coming from like a heavy JavaScript background. So in doing all this, uh, hopefully it will save people a lot of time if they have to do stuff like this, because there were just some things I thought were intuitive across all languages that it's totally not the case for Elixir and Erlang. Yeah. So, so I guess like, you know, timestamps are intuitive when everybody uses that. What is it? January 1st, 1970, whatever. But yeah, I didn't realize it was that much different with Elixir. But if you're dealing with like AD and BC and all sorts of crazy stuff from like a thousand years ago. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was, like I said, I had no idea that they were operating in a different time frame. So yeah, there's all these interesting quirks that make it interesting challenge. And especially when you have a newer language that just doesn't have as much information on Stack Overflow or the Elixir forums. That's actually another good thing. It's like, if you're building a project, do not immediately go to Stack Overflow. There's actually a lot of good content on the Elixir forums. So check out the Elixir forums, check out the Elixir Slack. All of those communities have been great for answering questions. And we're, we're I feel like we're starting to enter this era, especially with these newer languages, where Stack Overflow is no longer the place where you go to get a question answered. Slack communities, people are super responsive at all hours of the day. And these, the forum that Elixir has set up, a lot of the questions you could ask have been answered in there. So definitely don't just assume that Stack Overflow has the answer for you. Definitely check these other communities as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like almost every question that I ever Google for, it's almost always the Elixir forums coming up and not just coming up in, in like the first slot, but being uh, a really good answer to the problem. Usually multiple people chiming in with like really good information, like more than like something that would probably have gotten locked on Stack Overflow because it, inc you know, included like extra context, but that's like the really good stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is for a lot of older languages, you assume that those forums were written with answers that were 10, 15 years ago and they don't seem relevant. The nice part about having a new language is that all the answers are relevant because the language isn't that old. So you could see a post from 2016 and it still applies, even though Elixir has gone through many iterations, there's still certain facets of the language that are very much relevant today as they were four or five years ago. Yeah. So rewinding back to your app, uh, the web component of it that's using Phoenix, are you using the latest stable version of Phoenix? <laughs> Actually, I'm not. I think we're still on 1.4 um, or 1.3 maybe. I just know that if I tried to do a mix update, I would get a lot of outdated dependencies. To be honest, I might actually be rolling down the web part as much as I love the web app and like the experience of running in the web app. The feedback we've gotten from folks is they really like to be able to stay in the Slack ecosystem, which I don't blame them for. Originally, the idea would be that you could answer questions and then use the web portal as a means to learn more about people, almost like a 
modern version of Facebook where you answer a bunch of questions in the Slack bot. And then if you want to build a profile with your questions, you can then go to the website and then check out people's profiles. But the thing is, those profiles kind of already exist in Slack. I mean, if you click on anybody's face in Slack, you'll see their name, their phone number, their email, a little blurb about them, maybe a link to their website. And so we realized that to try to recreate that outside of the Slack ecosystem would take people away from the raw experience of answering questions and creating that culture. And we said, well, is there a way that we can replicate these interactions totally in the ecosystem? And we're actually starting to build out that functionality now. So especially with the help of more interactive elements like modals, it's making it a lot easier for us to create that sort of on the fly profile with the Slack ecosystem. So very soon we're probably going to roll off the Phoenix side of the project and just purely be a Slack events driven system, uh, which will be an interesting re-architecture because the nice part about Phoenix though, is that it already created that separation in the older versions of Phoenix. It very much mimicked rails. So you sort of had like one folder system for views, controllers, models, stuff like that. And then when they moved more towards a domain-driven design, they separated the domains and models from the actual web elements, which is really nice and convenient because if I have to roll off the web elements, it will just be about deleting a folder and not having to completely re-architect my application. Yeah, that was definitely a huge win when they made that change. And that's about the time when I got started working with Elixir and Phoenix. So Luckily, I didn't have to really make much of a migration since I started from that from ground zero. Totally. So I would say if you're looking to build a truly fully functional web application, definitely consider using Phoenix. Also consider using Phoenix, even if it means you can understand how the, the, the structure of the application works. One of the things I really like about Chris's framework is that the, the intelligent design of the architecture. So... Um, you may not use the web elements, but just thinking about things in a domain-driven way, I think is a really smart way to handle applications in a modern web development stack. So if you're thinking about doing that, still look at Phoenix, and I think there's an option for you to set it to be API only. If you say, for example, you have a SPA and you're using Phoenix to drive the server-side interactions, uh, you can do like the API only or JSON only option. Um, and that's still a super valid way of, of handling requests. I think that might be the way I still keep Phoenix is remove all the views, but keep all of the controllers for the server side endpoints. So yeah, if you're doing anything with a web, even if you're not using all of Phoenix's functionality, I think it's still a worthwhile framework because it provides a lot of great conventions for smart web development. Right. Now you mentioned earlier that this is a paid service, so people need to sign up, I guess, with a credit card potentially even PayPal, would you still need a website for people to be able to do that? Would that be written in Phoenix as well? Uh, yep. That's a good point. Wow. You're ahead of me. I should hire you for products. I didn't, <laughs> didn't think about that. Yeah. We do have a page for that. So technically you can sign up for free without needing a credit card. Uh, as soon as the first 20 questions are expired, then it will prompt you to send you back to the website where you can fill in your payment information. And I use the Stripe API, uh, the Elixir library for Stripe to make that all happen. So I think there's, uh, I don't know if you know this offhand, but I think there's a few different Elixir libraries for Stripe. Do you know which one that you happen to use? Oh man, I'd have to open up my laptop and see which one it is. I want to say it's the most generic name. One of them is like Stripey Stripe or something like that. It might be that one. There's a lot of goofy names for, there's so many weird, Elixir is the first language where, so, oh, this is a really great tip as well for anybody who's new. There's this whole thing called Awesome X 
like awesome Ruby, awesome Vim that's on GitHub. And pretty much if you type awesome and a language or a framework, you will find a page that just lists out all of these plugins and libraries. So there's one called awesome Elixir. It's like awesome dash Elixir. And if you type it into Google or DuckDuckGo, you'll find it pops right up. It's the first result on GitHub. Um, it's an amazing resource for all plugins you could possibly think of. And the way that I'll use it is if I need a new plugin for some sort of functionality like JSON parsing or Stripe, I'll just control F and type that phrase in and I will find three or four different plugins for that stuff. That's how I found the Slack API. That's how I found Stripe. That's how I found um, Uber Auth for handling authentication. Like everything you can think of is on Awesome Elixir. So if you're building a project and you're looking for some place to find some next plugin you need to solve a problem, start with that page because it's constantly updated and it has a lot of great resources on there. Yeah, those awesome lists are really good. Although I think for the older communities, they almost get, I don't want to say too good. It's almost like too bad. Like there's only, there's like too many choices to even know which one is good. You know what I mean? It goes from like a really nice curated list of like a hundred things to like this massive dump of like 5,000 things. Right. And you don't need eight different ways to connect to Postgres. There's definitely certain, there's definitely certain things where you need to solve the problem once and never again. And the nice part is Elixir is young enough where there aren't too many competitors. The hardest one I honestly found was authentication. What I found weird was there were a lot of plugins that were spun up really quickly and then retired really quickly. So like if you looked up JSON web tokens or authentication or authorization, you will find a bunch of repositories. There'll be like four or five different options and then two that are still maintained. And both of them don't necessarily solve the problem the way you want them to. And so... It, it, that was a really weird spot where I just, I couldn't find an intuitive solution for authentication. And luckily Slack has their own way of authenticating and it came built in with the Slack API that I used. So there was just like a plugin for OAuth. It's like, there's the Elixir Slack plugin. And then there's the Elixir Slack OAuth plugin that I added on top of that. And I just tried to move away completely from a more robust solution with UberAuth because I just... Couldn't find anything as intuitive as I could find with like Python or Ruby. Right. But I mean, at least there's something out there to at least base some work on. Oh, yeah. And the saying goes, especially for, for like the OWASP community and any of those sort of web security standards committees is never roll your own auth. So I at least know my own limits that I shouldn't roll my own auth. And luckily, the language was mature enough that someone had already rolled out some authentication. Yeah. So... On the Slackbot side of things for that Elixir application, are there any libraries that you can think of off the top of your head that were like really, really helpful for you to, to flesh out that project? Yeah, literally it's that one project, Elixir-Slack. Um, this guy, Blake Williams, runs it. And I'm actually a contributor to it as well because I've had enough use cases with it that I've had some upgrades that I've needed to make. So um, I'm actually a contributor for that project. So if, if you have suggestions or thoughts, definitely check it out. I try my best to respond to feedback. And so, yeah, that's been super helpful because I have access to the entire Slack web API through that plugin. And it just makes it super easy to integrate Slack requests into the language rather than having to do like what you were saying, you would just go through the terminal or some curl command and, and send HTTP requests. I can do that via Slack functions or Elixir functions. So I found it to be so much easier to use natively within Elixir than have to do it through uh, a bunch of 
string HTTP commands. Yeah, no, it does make a big difference when you have those function calls. Definitely makes it nicer to work with. Now, going back to the rest of your tech stack, besides Elixir, like what are you using for a database? Are you using Docker, like any type of caching, Redis, things like that? Yeah, we're just using Postgres. So everything is just stored in one relational database. Um, again, the whole thing we, we, we're trying to aspire to is to not pre-optimize things. Outside, of, it's funny, there's this phrase that you should go with boring technology. And I was about to say we go with boring technology, and that would totally not be the case with Elixir and Phoenix. Out, basically, outside of that, we use very standardized technology. So for me, that was Postgres. I felt like that was a, a gold standard. It was free. It was easy to use. Um, it integrates really well uh, with Elixir. So that was our standard choice there. Um, <clears throat> we really don't use that much off-the-shelf plugins or tools outside of a database and um, Phoenix and the sort of native libraries, really. Uh, a couple of plugins for JSON parsing. But other than that, yeah, there's really not too much magic sauce underneath the hood for us. Um, we use GigaLixer for our hosting. So they handle the sort of the Dockerization and all that container management. Um, what I really liked about GigaLixer was that they are optimized for an Elixir stack. So if you did all this on Heroku, you would need to have two servers running, one for your actual server and then one for the job queue, right? Because it doesn't totally work off the shelf in one service with Elixir. But since the uh, Gig Elixir team is optimized for the Elixir stack, you can run one instance rather than two to stand up both your job queue for task management as well as the standard web server running. So we pay less and we get a better service using Gig Elixir than if we use something like Heroku. Um, plus, Jesse, the founder there at Gig Elixir, is super friendly. I mean, I, I, I've, I've emailed him so many times at odd hours and he responds back instantly. It's amazing to have that kind of level of customer service. So we're happy to use them and, and pay with them because they deliver a better service and they're really tailored towards the Elixir community. So I would highly recommend them if you need to stand up a web server or a service similar to Heroku. Yeah, that's really good to hear because I did take a look at them in the past and I definitely, definitely have nothing against them. I have no like basis to even evaluate them. But it always makes me a little bit scared to go with a service like that without them already having a massive track record. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, it's your production app. It's like literally the most important thing possible, I guess. Because if they go down, you go down type of deal. Totally. But I can say with some confidence that I genuinely have never been more impressed with like a founding team in terms of their pedigree. Like everybody comes from Google or Stripe or Facebook. Like they're all like incredible engineers. Um, and there's like six of them and they all have very relevant experience in this kind of background. So I feel very comfortable that what they're building out, they have a capable team behind them. And the fact that they are responding to requests so frequently and willing to dive in on top of their documentation, like they're not just going to come back to you and say, oh, read the docs. They actually walk you through certain things. So anytime that I've had troubles with our application, they've been really good to respond. And we've had, we've had no problems with uptime. Really. So I'm happy to use their service. Jesse, if you're listening, you just got an amazing endorsement, but I really am a big <laughs> fan of GigaLixer. No, that's actually, that's amazing to hear. Like, I'm really happy to see that they run a successful company and service is great on both uh, technical and personal side. Like, those are really big ones to have. And I think I remembered once I read 
I think it was somewhere on like their homepage about how, yeah, it's like zero downtime deploys, right? Pretty much like you don't have to worry about your app going down in between different deploys. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the way that any other service works. Like the only way that you would have downtime is if you had some sort of locking migration, right? So like you had to rewrite your tables and you had millions of records and it took us several minutes, right? Like you might experience some downtime, but for most things where you're doing like a add a column or change some data on relatively low amounts of data and it's in a migration, you're likely not going to experience too much, if any, downtime. Um, I, I We've yet to have any downtime scenarios. So yeah, that that's definitely fully capable within the, within the Gig Elixir uh, stack. Yeah, very cool. So are you running anything in front of the Cowboy web server at all, like Nginx or no? I honestly don't know. Whatever it is, it's it's whatever the stack is run on Gig Elixir. I only interface with Cowboy and that Cowboy is what powers Phoenix. Um, everything else that's under the hood below that is run by the Gig Elixir service. So, ah, so they're handling TLS for you and SSL certificates and all things like that? Exactly. I just have to specify what... I think they support it natively now. I'm trying to think of how we handled that. For a while, I used Let's Encrypt, but I didn't have to really worry about anything under the hood. I just had to get the actual certificate, sign it, and and upload it, right, and, and let the let them know that they have you know a valid certificate. But I think at this point they handle it automatically. Hmm. Yeah, that's good to hear because when it comes to the Let's Encrypt stuff, uh, those certificates expire after 90 days. So you'd have to like re-sign that manually and update it every couple months. I used to have to do that with my GitLab projects. So I had a bunch of personal websites and it was such a pain. I would get that email every... And the thing too is like, I think I did them staggered. So like I did one website one week and then the next website the other week. So like for three weeks straight, I would get an email. Oh, your thing's about to expire. And I had to do it all manually. And it was so annoying. And oh, man. the first time I did it was awful because I had no idea what I was doing. And then by then it was just like second nature by the time I did it the 14th time. But thankfully, <laughs> GitLab has finally automated all this stuff so that I don't have to think about it anymore, which I really appreciate. Whereas with Gig Elixir, it was automated right off the bat, which I really appreciated. Yeah, it's definitely nice not to have to worry about anything SSL related. You know, even though Let's Encrypt is a really good service, like you still do need to set it up and configure it and set up crown jobs or whatever you're going to do to, you know, try to do it automatically. Or even like, you know, it goes as far as if you want to do wildcard search, then it's like you need to set up DNS-based validation with like the API of your DNS hosting. Like, yeah, it, it gets a little bit complicated, even though it's technically easy. Yeah. And the hardest thing, too, is that it just there's something that feels wrong about the fact that if we're trying to push for HTTPS everywhere, that it should be this hard to stand up. Like this just feels like something that I'm glad that we're finally solving that problem for end users because they shouldn't have to worry about this stuff. It should just be. It shouldn't even be an option that I have to think about, do I want a secure website? Just give it to me from the beginning and don't don't let me think about it. Just let me figure out how to you know, build my business and not worry about, is my site secure? Right. Now, when it comes to Gig Elixir, do they also provide you a way to get at like log files and metrics about your application and things like that? Yep. So it's literally command in the command line. You can just type in Gig Elixir logs and they'll do a tail of the latest comments. They also give a suggestion for a tool set to allow you to do that similar to something like Datadog. I forget what the name of the service is. I think it's called, because it's like a TR. I'm like totally blanking on this. I have to look it up. This is like really bad, I know, right? Like I'm the one who's building this whole thing and I don't even know what services I'm using. Um, it's okay. 
Yeah, it's like some service. It's in the GigaLixer docs. They said, hey, if you want the full list of logs and you want an actual UI to manage them, check this one out. And it was super simple. It was just like a extension in a, it's another mix plugin. And then you just pipe it to some URL and it just ingests all the logs. It's really, really great. And it works seamlessly with GigaLixer. So I have easy access to all of our logs, um, which has been super helpful. Nice. So do they give you like, unlimited retention with those logs or is there some limit yeah i think it's like some limit but it's it's far enough for us that anytime we have any issues we're able to go far enough back in the logs to find them so i haven't had any problems with the free tier thus far ah so free tier in the sense that like do they have separate tiers for certain features like a free tier of logging or is it just like free tier on the hosting altogether or how's it broken up oh so we pay for gigalixer just to stand up the web server and the database server the, there's a whole separate website for the logging, which we don't pay for because the length of the log retention is enough for us to uh, solve all of our problems. Like if someone complains of an issue on the service, I'm always on it within the same day. So, And those logs, I think, last like seven days. So okay. it's more than enough time for us to debug something. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like typically when you want to look at logs, right, it's like at the time of crisis, like you need to debug things. So as long as you have a couple of days worth, that's usually good. Yep, exactly. So if you don't mind me asking, you mentioned that you pay for the uh, web server and database on GigaLixer. Are you able to share how much you pay for that? Yeah, it's just 50 bucks a month. So our whole thing was we're going to be a profitable side project if we can just get more than 50 bucks a month in users. And so that's the exciting part is our expenses are extremely low. Um, and again, that's a big part of that is because GigaLixer bundles their web services with their task managers. Whereas on Heroku or other sort of setup like that, you would have to have two separate um, servers, one for the job queue and one for the web server. So they save us a bunch of money and their prices are reasonable and they, they can handle more than enough volume given the instance we're running right now. So do you, can, can you take a look at things like uh, the health of that instance, like how much CPU and memory you're using? Just to know like when you need to scale up. Exactly. They have, a to they have a dashboard for that, and we've never hit close to our limits. Just because, luckily, that's the nice part about Elixir. I think one time I had an Elixir project that made the top of Hacker News, and I did it on a hobby instance of Gig Elixir, and it didn't go down. Or it was a hobby instance of Heroku. It was something. It was basically like, if I did it in Rails, it 100% would have blown up. No problem. I would have not been able to handle the traffic. I think I got like 20,000 visits in like a couple of minutes. On Elixir, it stayed up the entire time and had no problem. So that's the other thing too, is I don't actually honestly think too much about scale because Elixir is so good at handling scale from the very beginning. I'll put it this way. I would probably be in a really good spot financially <laughs> if we were in a spot where we had enough customers where I actually had to worry about scale. Like that would be an amazing problem for me to have. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I wish I had 500,000 people paying me per month. <laughs> yes, exactly. If I've had that many people and they were like, hey, maybe you should run a second instance, I'd be like, I don't know, $500,000 <laughs> a month. Can I afford to double from 550 bucks a month to 100 bucks a month? Let me think about that. Yeah, yeah. no, that's the thing. Like the, the Elixir is great enough right off the bat that if plenty of scale is baked in for any kind of hobby project. Right. Now, just swinging back to other maybe external like SaaS tools that you might be using? Like you mentioned GigaLixer, you know, handles the logging and the metric side of things, but what about like error reporting? Like, do you get emailed or do you use something like Sentry or a different service? So for those, again, we're staying super scrappy. Um, my error reporting is my co-founder. He, he, he's very much on the pulse with our customers. 
So anytime that they experience any issues, they just email us and that goes right to him. And then he'll send me a message on Slack and go, hey, something's down, something's broken. And I'll just respond to it as fast as I can. But we are, I have like some basic metrics on rates of errors and they're extremely low. That's the other nice thing about having a pseudo typed language like Elixir is all that functional programming makes it, they, they, they often find the bugs before I do. So it's great to have that, a language that really forces you into writing better software. So our bug rates are pretty low. And if we find them, it's usually a logical issue, not anything to do with the language or writing out bad code. Right. Yeah. I really love when I start the project up and I just see like 18 warnings come up from the compiler because it's like, Hey, those are things that the machine is telling me is broken before I get in trouble. Oh yeah. Or not necessarily broken, but you know, like an unused import or this is renamed or whatever. Exactly. Knowing that I had a, a, a variable that I thought was used and wasn't was helpful to remove because it helped me clean up a function that thought it was doing one thing and was actually doing something else. Yeah. Little things like that make a big difference for the better. So how do you get code onto Gigalixer from your dev box? It's super easy. You just put, it's like git push Gigalixer master. So all you're saying is rather than pushing it to origin, which would be origin for me is set to github.com, it's to Gigalixer's servers. And then it spins up a job that says like, hey, we're building your Elixir service from scratch. We're uploading it to the server. We're starting the server. It does, it handles all that. So like in the course of two minutes, I can hit literally one command and then have my server up and running with the latest code. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you, do you have it running across two different, uh, like I don't know how they handle like instances or servers, but do you have it running on two containers or servers in parallel? I think they handle all that. I don't know. I, we have, I have one service that stood up and I'm assuming they have some sort of replication strategy on the back end for them in terms of you know how much replication is required for a given instance. But yeah, if they're trying to achieve zero downtime, I'm imagining they have, they've spin up a replica build the new service on that and then spin off the old server to wind that one down with the outdated code. That's my guess. You mentioned that, uh, you know, if you wanted to push it up to GitHub or something, you would use the origin name instead of Gigalixer. Do you also push your code up to GitHub to take advantage of like some CI service or just sharing code or having it backed up? Yeah, I use it for backing up code. And then I use Gigalixer for just getting the latest version out to customers. Right. So then before you push code to Gigalixer from your dev box, do you just, do you do like a local test run to make sure everything works? Yeah, that is actually the hardest part. I would love if anybody who's listening tell me a better way of doing this, but honestly, I don't have a good way to preview right now. The challenge right now is because the Slack workstation is the production service, there's no way for me to they're the ones that have the protocol for sending requests to your API. Like I can't, I can't spoof Slack and send in requests to my API. It's all coming from a specific service. Like, so the way Slack works is you have to give them a callback URL and the callback URL has some encrypted information on it that you have to decrypt when it arrives. That's why I have that whole verifying signatures blog post because they'll send the payload in an encrypted format. And you have to verify that it's coming from Slack. So trying to replicate that is a real challenge. And so the way that I honestly have to do things is I have to just go live with a lot of stuff. It's really, it's not fun. You know, I can spin up a local web server to test stuff on the Phoenix side, but in terms of testing and interaction in Slack, I actually have no idea how I would do that locally. So oftentimes I'm kind of flying blind and hoping that things work. 
Yeah, so I haven't gotten too deep in the woods with Slack, so I'm not really sure what you can and can't do. I mean, this is like a super obvious question, but like if you're just trying to test the functionality of being able to post something on a Slack channel, can you just spin up your own like dev version of a Slack account, like a different account that you can just test against? Well, so we do have specific workspaces that we use to test out this functionality. So, you know, I can still post to GigaLixer in about two minutes. So I have a pretty quick feedback loop in terms of testing it out on test accounts. It's more that it would be great if I had like an instance of Slack running locally that was just like the whole system ecosystem so that I could just spin stuff up really quickly. But unfortunately, it has to go to my live server. I would have to like ngrok basically to create a public tunnel to my Slack workspace because there's, there's a whole like um, developer portal within the slack.com website for your Slack bots and your Slack applications. So I, I would literally have to have like a test account where it, it, it ngrokked to some public URL because again, like, it still has to make that call over HTTPS from Slack service to your web server. So regardless, I would have to be both sides of the coin there. And I don't know how I would be able to stand that up locally. So that's the only challenge I have is I don't know how I could create that local environment. And the best way that I can do it is we just have a sample Slack workspace where we just test everything out raw as soon as we can before it hits customers. Right. Yeah, I see what you mean. Now it's almost like when you're dealing with wanting to test webhooks from Stripe, like, yeah, typically ngrok is the way to go. Although now I guess in Stripe's, they introduce some command line tool that you can use, but I haven't used that personally. But it just opens up like a local tunnel. The other thing too with Stripe, which I really like, is they have like test, and they did the same thing with Slack too, is they have like a test only mode where it's like, are you sure you want to go live? Test it out on like a sample workspace first before you're ready to go. So you know, we were, we were in development for a long time. Again, this was a side project. So we would work on it on weekends and nights. So for a really long time, it was only available on our workspace. And then once we got to a point where we felt like we had enough features, we posted it live to the marketplace. So this is the only scary part now is like, now if anything breaks, I have to like scramble to fix it because there is only one environment if it's already live, I don't have to take the whole Slack app down and I don't want to do that. So we did a lot of testing upfront before we published it. Um, to ensure that it was of a high quality. So speaking of the Slack marketplace, you know, that's something I have no experience with, but I was just on a client call last week where someone has an application, like they have a Google Chrome extension and they changed something and they had to like get a new patch of it up on the Google store for like the Chrome extension store or whatever it's called. And yeah, there was like a five day turnaround time before that new code can get human reviewed and, and pushed live. Is there any type of constraints for the uh, Slack marketplace in that regard or no? Oh yeah, it's just like the App Store or the Google Play Store. Uh, you go through App Review and we went through it for a while. Again, since it's a side project, they would get back to us actually pretty quickly and then it would take me a really long time to fix it. So I think we were in Slack Review for like three weeks, which it doesn't have to be. I mean, you could do it in like three days if you, if you were running this as like your full-time job. So they were really responsive and they were very helpful and they have a pretty thorough checklist as well too. So it was nice to kind of go through that process and ensure that we had all the right stuff available for, for customers. But yeah, it just, because it's a side project, it took us a really long time to get through because we just weren't working on it full time. Right. But after that initial, like getting it up on the marketplace, if you were to push like a revision to that, to that app on the marketplace, does it need to go through another three week review or is it like some like instant or somewhere in between? Oh, no. Once it's live, it's live. So I, I've made like tiny minor fixes and haven't had a problem going through review at all. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit different than a Chrome extension where all of the code for that needs to live on Google's like infrastructure. And now suddenly they're promoting that to every user using Chrome. So it needs to be like human reviewed for every change. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it's it's worked that way, but I guess they just go through like a sort of like major review. I don't know what would prompt them to need to re-review the application other than if we did like a major feature overhaul. But again, I don't really know exactly how that works other than we had to go through it initially just to get it on the marketplace. I guess the only way that we could go through it again is if we took it off the marketplace because we wanted to do a major, you know, rebrand. But yeah, thus far it's been like really, really simple and straightforward. Yeah, that's good to hear. Now, going back to your deployment process a little bit with Gigalixer, how do they manage secrets for you? Like, you know, your secret keys and things like that? Yeah, it's just like a pretty straightforward command line interface. So you just add the secret. It's like a Gigalixer config set. You give it the name of the variable and then the name of the value. And then you can just go through the command line to view all of your variables and secrets. So it's a it's a pretty straightforward process. Yeah, it sounds very, very similar to what Heroku does. Yep. So do they give you any options when it comes to like planning for disasters? Like how do you deal with database backups and, and things like that? Uh, they allow for snapshots and they do backups pretty frequently, um, which is what you get with a paid tier. Uh, we haven't had any major disasters, thankfully, knock on wood, uh, for our databases yet. So I haven't really had that problem. I think the only time I had to worry about this was I was running an older version of Phoenix and Postgres. And then when we rebuilt the Slack app, we wanted, we wanted to be on a newer version of Postgres. So I just had to pull in our latest data. There was like some reason why we had to do a database recovery and we just pulled the latest it was like one command it was very straightforward it's literally postgres has a command line and you can curl into a remote database to get the data dump of it and again it's all in their documentation so i just did like one command on the command line i pulled in the snapshot i made the changes locally and then pushed up the latest data so it was it was very straightforward and like i said the docs for gigalix are are great so any kind of issue you might run into they have a question and an answer for it pretty cool so they do they give you an option of how frequent you want those database backups to run hourly or daily or weekly yeah i want to say it's hourly but i think you have to pay more if you want more granularity in your snapshot availability but thus far i think ours have been daily and I haven't needed anything more than that. So uh, good news is like, I think you can pay more for more snapshot granularity. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely good to hear. Like me, I would be a little bit scared for daily, but I don't know, out of the whole stack, like Postgres is probably the most stable thing out of everything. So it's like something really, really, really bad needs to happen. Like almost like, you know, your app gets compromised to, to actually need a backup. Yep, exactly. And so again, this is one of those things where you're asking reasonable questions. The reason why I don't have an answer is because we're a small enough startup side project that we haven't run into these issues yet. And there are enough mitigations in place in terms of what they have available for me to solve the problem. Um, it's just one of those things where it's it's not in my mind space until it is in my mind space, in which case I will <laughs> yeah. scramble to figure out how that works. But I know that they have that availability and support thus far. What about things like getting emailed or alerted if the site happens to be unresponsive? Do you have something like that set up? Yeah, I mean, they have an email. You have to provide an email when you sign up. So I'll get those if I have a any sort of downtime event like that. Um, but we haven't had any of those so far. So I guess the answer is like it exists, 
I just haven't seen an email show up yet because I haven't had any downtime issues. I don't know how you either interpret that as a good thing or a bad thing because we don't have enough users like to create those events. I don't know. Either way, like we we haven't run into that yet, which is a which is a blessing and a curse, I guess, if we're not running into a lot of issues. No, I would say it's a good thing. Although it's also sometimes a little bit scary because like I have one of those services hooked up to my blog where it's Uptime Robot. They're like a free service where you can just it pings your site every five minutes, and if it happens to be unresponsive, like it doesn't throw a two hundred, then you get emailed. But it's kind of scary when, like, when you don't get that email for like a year straight. You're just wondering, like, is the service monitoring my service even like legitimate? Like, is, has it really been up for that long? Right. That's exactly what I mean. It's like, it's a good thing because it hasn't happened, but it's a bad thing because now I'm paranoid, thinking, well, now you're making me think, hmm, I haven't gotten those. Should I have gotten them? What am I? What <laughs> am I doing wrong that I should be monitoring more? Well, I guess on the bright side, you said you have the best error detection program available, the human brain. So, you know, if your site or Slack bot is down, I'm sure you'll get some of some users will inform you. Yep, exactly. And luckily, we're pretty responsive to that stuff. So uh, it hasn't really been too much of a problem thus far. So we're getting towards the end of the show here. What's some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? Yep. Again, I would say definitely reach out to the Elixir community, whether through the Elixir forums or the Elixir Slack. I found both to be extremely helpful in terms of answering questions on the fly. Also, I would take a look at that awesome Elixir site because it has every plugin under the sun that you could need for any kind of project. And I think between those three things, you're really going to be in a good spot in terms of building out any kind of project you want. The last thing I would say is just learn to enjoy a new language that has a bit of novelty to it. Is a, I can't think of a better way of putting that. With a lot of other languages, every problem is solved under the sun. And that is both a good thing because it you you have resources to solve virtually any problem, but it also is kind of not as much fun because there's no reason to explore or really think hard about a problem. And one of the things I really like about Elixir is when I do run into something that has never been solved before, it's a really great opportunity to flex those muscles and learn something new and really push yourself. So, you know, the one way to see the glass half full for a new language like Elixir is, yes, there is not as much production support. It's not used with as many uh, production applications. But the good news is, is you're exploring new territory and you're learning new skills. And I would just say that, you know, anytime you get stuck on something where you really feel like there isn't an answer in the Elixir community, use that as an opportunity to really push yourself and learn more about computer science, about how languages work, and about how to solve problems. And that's what makes it so much fun for me writing an elixir is the opportunity to do something new and novel. Yeah, that's very, very well put. And I kind of had a similar experience too when it came to that. Like I had such a basic problem, like what I would have solved in Python. Like I just wanted to do basically a for loop and keep some state outside the for loop, like a counter essentially. And it was such a hard problem for me to solve an elixir because I don't think like I'm not, you know, it's my first take at a functional language. So I'm not really too familiar with using things like MapReduce. And like what would have been like literally like an eight second solution in Python without thinking ended up turning into like a two hour talk with Jose and IRC and him like helping me through the problem. And like it helped me learn things that I can apply to other languages besides Elixir. Like it was just a really cool learning experience I wouldn't have had if I just was using Python. Absolutely. And what other language are you going to be able to talk with the creators of the language over learning some concept? What seems as trivial as incrementing a counter into something that is like really truly cool about what you're sort of exploring and what you're trying to do. So I just, I think that's so great that we can still have those moments 
in a language like Elixir that you're not going to find anymore on Python or C++. Yeah, it's awesome. Now, on the flip side of like best tips and lessons learned, do you or are you aware of some code maybe that you wrote in the past on this project where you're looking back now, it was like, wow, that was a huge mistake. I'm, ha I'm happy I fixed that like two months ago. I mean, that's every day for every piece of code I've ever written in any language. <laughs> like, I feel like any developer who cares about their craft looks at anything from 30 days or 60 or a year ago and goes, wow, why did I write it that way? I'm really glad I did this new thing this right way. So I'm constantly looking at that. And also, I think it's more so the case in a functional language like Elixir. Just because so many of us come from an OOP background, you're not used to certain ways of doing things, especially the whole pattern matching thing can be tough for some people to grasp in a language like Elixir. And it's just a different way of thinking about writing code. So I'm sure there were ways I wrote things really early on in my earlier Elixir projects where I look back at them and I'm like, why did I do it that way? It's so much easier if you do it this way. And that just comes from practice, right? Like you just have to write enough lines of Elixir where you start to become comfortable with certain paradigms. So that's the other thing too, is like embrace the fact that you're not going to write perfect Elixir right off the bat. And that's okay. Credo actually is a really good checker for that kind of stuff. So I would de definitely make sure that you include Credo in all of your Elixir applications because it has that sort of like style guide best practices built in on top of what you already get from the latest versions of Elixir, which I think is a really awesome feature. Like you can now auto save in any, whether you're in Sublime or VS Code, and it will automatically save to like the Elixir standard format for, it's like a prettier for Elixir that's built into the language, which I think is really cool. But in addition to that, Credo provides that ability to provide, you know, additional ways of ensuring that your code is readable, uh, the file sizes are small enough, all that kind of like be developer best practices. Definitely include that because that will also help reinforce certain practices that you may not be used to in the Elixir language. Uh, so is Credo one of those things then, because I'm not too familiar with that one, does it like evaluate your functions to make sure that they're less than like eight lines long and like has some complexity level that's like to a certain degree? Yeah, there's like a whole set of configurations for Credo, which I really like. So you can tune it to something as simple as how many characters do I want in a given line to, you know, should every function require one of those Elixir type signatures? So you you can change all the rules to it for it to be whatever you wanted them to be. And I just really like that because it's helping me understand best practices of the language that I wouldn't necessarily know if I didn't have that reminder there. And you can do the same thing too. Like you can have it trigger errors versus warnings for certain functionality, which is really nice. So it just really all depends on how far down that rabbit hole you want to go to create quote perfect code. So I really like that in combination with Elixir's built-in sort of prettier compiler because it, it will help you write really great code right from the beginning. Yep. Yeah, that's the mix format command. I definitely run that quite often. Yeah, and I actually have it built into my Sublime so that every time I save, it just automatically saves it to that format. Yeah, that is very helpful. So Adam, on that note, thanks so much for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you. I had a ton of fun. Yeah, definitely threw out some good tips. I'm, I'm going to go through that awesome list now as soon as we get off the call. <laughs> Before you wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, things like that? Sure. So our application is gettoknowapp.com. Uh, my Twitter is the Adam Conrad, and my GitHub is just AC Conrad. So those are, I don't really have too many social links, but I am on, on Twitter and GitHub. You can check us out, like I said, get to know app.com uh try it for free it doesn't require a credit card or anything and my email is just uh me 
at adamconrad.dev. So if you have any suggestions for the app or you see anything that's wrong with it, I'm always available on email. Uh, so I'm always happy to take suggestions or any thoughts or, or feedback. Awesome. Yeah, I'm always happy to see when uh, company founders are eager to actually listen to customers and engage with them one-on-one. Like it makes such a big difference in the end. Oh, absolutely. And plus, I just love interacting with the community. So if anybody has any suggestions, I'm, I'm always happy to, to take an ear and, and talk with folks more. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.